This is Religion and Theology, a podcast from the Center for Theology and Religious Studies. Since 2018, the research project Integration and Tradition, the making of the Syriac Orthodox Church in Sweden, has been ongoing. In a brief series of episodes, the main concluding conference on the project will be broadcasted on religion and theology, with a focus on presenting and discussing its results. In this episode, we will get an introduction and overall presentation to the project by the project leader Magdalena Nordin of Gothenburg University. Nordin will talk on the topic of the making of the Syriac Orthodox Church in Sweden. Following the presentation, Dr. Katarina Westerlund from Uppsala University will offer reflections on Nordin's talk. Welcome everyone, um, we are so glad that you could come to our end of a project conference uh, and we kind of, we have the headings that is we're going to present results but these are not results, kind of a results result, we haven't published these results yet so we're really happy that you can come and, and uh, give us some comments and, and uh, reflect on what we're trying to say or could be results. I will make a short presentation of the research project overall. Uh, and then Katarina Westerlund, who is associate professor at Uppsala University, will uh, give a comment on that from the research parallel research project that's been going on for the same time about international Pentecostal or charismatic uh, congregations in the Stockholm area. So we'll see if there are things that we kind of can learn from each other. So, just shortly about the project, Integration and Tradition, the making of the Syriac Orthodox Church in Sweden. So it was a four-year research project that we kind of extended, managed to have the right to extend to five years. So we've been four researchers, and I think that was, a, uh, when we applied for this project, we, we constructed a research group with uh, two researchers that were more contemporary, and then we joined with two researchers who knew, had the tradition, the knowledge of the tradition and the historical knowledge of the church. And I think that was kind of a, for me at least, and I think for the whole group, it has been very, very helpful to have kind of the knowledge from us doing research, contemporary research, knowing kind of the ethnographic methods that we were working with and then having those who knew about the church and the tradition of the church. So that, that was really, and I think that's also not that common, these type of research projects that you combine contemporary researchers with and also have the in-depth knowledge of the church. So um, I think that have been working out really, really good. Um, so why did we start this research project? But one of the reasons was that there, there has been studies done in Sweden about kind of the group, the Syrian Syrians, in Sweden where we touched upon the church and how the group in Sweden, the history of the group in Sweden and how that related to the church. 
but there hasn't been any research done on the church itself in Sweden. And it's a 50 years history, so it's a modern history and it's a Swedish church. So, and also it's important to do it now, and I think we're sometimes a little too late, uh, because those who were the first one establishing the church, um, they don't live anymore, and all kind of the things that happened then was not archived totally. I have small archives, and, and Henrik has tried to find them. But, but to talk to these people, we must do it now, because it's kind of too, too late soon, and then it's kind of a story told to the second generation, and yeah, you know what happened when histories go further. So it was really needed to do this kind of um, research because we didn't know anything about the church. And I would just short say something about how has research on migration and religion been done before, uh, because there is also lack of looking into traditions. Uh, so there's been on transnational migration, globalization, processes, and diaspora. So this broad picture we have, uh, kind of a lot of research done. Uh, also religion related to other social structures. So we kind of, we have the religions, but it's kind of not in-depth into the religions. It's more kind of how they relate, relate to other social structures. And also kind of about the religious organizations and their relation to the receiving country, uh, countries. And the quality of research done, it's been kind of how, how religion works for people or the congregations, how they kind of group belonging. Uh, it's been on social functions of the religious organizations. Uh, how can they help a person, for example, in a, in a migrant situation? And also kind of this, how religion has positive aspects of religion and it's a part of a migration history, a migration situation. So these we find in quality research. And if we go to quantitative research, it's very much about on an individual level on religiosity. And it's, as you know, aware of, it's very difficult to, to kind of measure how how religion change or religiosity change. But there are some research done and some tries. But what we don't have is about religious traditions in relation to migration. In-depth studies, they're coming. <laughs> Sarah's doing it and some of them are upcoming. But in the process, there's very, very little done. And looking to inside the churches or the religious denominations, what happened with the traditions? Well, how do they change and how do that relate to the society uh, where they now are. And uh, if I have just finished I've written a book with my colleague Jonas Otterbeck uh, about migration and religion. So if you don't, this kind of, you can go and see there that there is nothing really about tradition yet, but it's an overview of the research done uh, since the, the 15th of, of religion and migration in Western Europe. Can you read? It's quite bright here, but yeah. Um, so what did we want to do then in this study? Well, we wanted to study in which ways the Syriac Orthodox congregations been integrated in society. Uh, and then with the tradition in focus then, how has this been negotiated, changed and upheld in relation to process of integration. So we haven't kind of done studied integration in this classical economical or, or political science sense that 
are they integrated due to their vote or their income or whatever? It's the processes. How do you change? For what reason? What is not seen to be changeable? The Syriac Orthodox Church has a narrative, a tradition of being an old church with old traditions that have been the same for a lot of years. And of course, that's, that's also true, but there are also changes going on. So we thought that it would be interesting to look into a church with this strong idea of strong traditions and how they could change and the processes behind these changes or not changes. And then we had four themes that we started to kind of to capture this idea, organization, leadership, liturgical celebrations, and teaching. And we will touch upon some of these in our presentations these days. And integration, we have tried to kind of the concept to kind of making it possible to analyze which we tried with the talking about external integration and internal integration. So external integration is in a way outlooking <laughs> from the congregations, from parishes and outlooking. How do they kind of this and its members, how the ideas, tradition, regulation and norms of behavior relates to then uh, other institutions. So is there kind of a interconnectedness between other institutions in the society? So the, from the congregation and outlooking. So that's kind of the perspective we worked with. And then as kind of from Prometheon, the institutional incorporation of the religion itself into the cultural institutional fabric of the larger society. So putting the church in the rest of society and see how it, how it meets, mostly from the congregation and outwards. Next project will be from rest of the society and, and to the churches maybe, but we haven't done that in this project. And then we looked into internal integration. So what's this going on with the, the, the traditions inside the churches, the, the parishes that we studied? How have they kind of um, changed and been reinterpreted and, uh, and so on? Um, so that's kind of the overall idea. And I'll, I'll just give you a very kind of way to understand this, that the congregations are kind of a part of a church, a Syriac Orthodox church. Uh, the members are part of the congregation and they are part of Sweden and they are kind of part of a, an overall global uh, transnational uh, situation. So it's kind of a lot of things, but, but our center is the congregations. So that's also quite new when doing religion and migration studies that, that kind of keep the parishes, the congregation as in focus. So how are all these things interconnected? So that's the background. So what did we do? Well, we were lucky enough. Uh, it's always the COVID question. <laughs> uh, we were lucky enough to be finishing our fieldwork when COVID came. We had just one fieldwork package that we want to do. That was Eastern 2020 that we had to kind of skip. Uh, but we had a lot of material uh, gathered before that. So we were really, in that sense, lucky. We were. We could sit back home and then do the analysis of all the material and COVID would just pass by. It wasn't that easy, but more or less. Um, the focus has been on three congregations in Sweden. We try to keep these congregations anonymous. Uh, 
so that we could have people to speak openly and tell what's going on in the congregations, not being kind of afraid that this would be known. Uh, of course, in the long run, and the congregation, of course, know that we've been there. <laughs> but what we, we won't kind of mention. So if you ask, we won't, we won't tell. Uh, even during, not even during dinner tonight, we won't tell you what congregation's about. Yes? Yeah? Andreas, you? No. No, 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 no. 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 I won't say anything. Um, and we did in-depth semi-structured interviews. So we went to the congregations. We had an agreement with the congregation even before we got the research project that we were welcome to come there. So we had contacts with them and they had said it's okay that we come. That was agreed upon with the board of the congregations, the parishes, and with the priest of the parishes. So they knew that we were get, trying to get research uh, funding to do this research, and we were really, they really helped us in all the way they could be. We were welcome, and we could come and go as we wanted, really, in these congregations. Uh, so we could do interviews with the different people in the in the congregations just ordinary lay people with people from with the priests uh, with the choir with the deacons uh, youth groups whatever we kind of thought was of interest so we did also observations we stayed there we went to a lot of liturgies uh, and realized that as everyone else was recording during the liturgy we asked if it was okay for us also to do so and that was okay so we have also recordings, which then, of course, for ethical reason, uh, only the four of us in the research group will look into. And we have watched a lot of recordings. Uh, and then we have written documentary material. We realized uh, after a while that um, it was difficult for us to see if these three congregations, but typical or atypical. Is this kind of a typical congregation, Syriac Orthodox congregation in Sweden, or is it kind of totally, things going on here is just nothing about what's going on in the rest of the church. So we decided to uh, do archival material, that's what I'll come back to, but we, try, we did a survey uh, with help from the dioceses, with help from uh, um, research assistant, uh, Charlotte Winas, who will come tomorrow. Um, so we sent out a, a survey to all the congregations in Sweden, 54 questions, and we got back uh, a lot of answers, and that's been very helpful material to have. And we're really, really happy that they managed to answer all these very uh, tricky questions. Uh, I don't know why we made 54 questions, but we got so many answers, and we're really glad. And then we also made an archival material that Henrik mostly looked into to have background history to see what happened before. So we ended up with 78 interviews that was mostly individual interviews, but also some couples that we interview and in some cases as uh, group interviews. Um, we have 83 observations and then we have photos, sound recordings and other material. Gathered. So it was kind of field work, being there, doing interviews, uh, doing observations. And then we have film uh, with picture uh, recordings from 32 gatherings. Uh, it's about 50 hours uh, of recordings. And it's been really helpful uh, to have these recordings. But you can go into depth, you can look, and then you can go back and look again and look again and look again and see what all things going on uh, in these congregations. And we have 
we sit in the back, so we, we do see people, but in the same sense, we can't kind of, they can be kind of anonymous, but we don't know who they are in many cases. But that's been helpful. And then um, written documentary material. Um, I'll just shortly say something about the church. There are some of you, a few of you, that may be not familiar with the church in Sweden or with the church in general. It's a church that is kind of a diasporic church by now. Um, and Sweden has, uh, from the diasporic group, is one of the largest uh, group, even if it's not that many people, it's at least uh, one of the largest uh, Christian minorities churches in Sweden and uh, of, from the Oriental and, and East uh, churches is the largest one. And then it's spread from different parts. We have the photo up to the right is from Inköping in Sweden. The one here in the bottom is from, from the Netherlands, from Hengelo, which is also kind of a center for the Syriac Orthodox Church in Europe. Uh, Santa Maria Church there. And then the Circus Orthodox Church in Sweden. We have the monastery up to the left, and then we have the two cathedrals in, in Södertälje that you're, most of you are familiar with. Um, the group has been here since the late 60s. Churches, as Henrik will maybe mention more about that, started in the 1970s. 48 congregation, about 45,000 members. So I have to keep the difference differences between members and being part of the church. Uh, one of the most important countries for the church in the world, maybe, we can discuss that during <laughs> these days, but, but it has, uh, it's a well-established church in Sweden and, and known kind of in, in the rest of the world. Tumultuous process of change, the two dioceses, which kind of, I think, say something about the church in Sweden in comparison, for example, to the Netherlands where it can kind of, uh, I, I think it's a little different, uh, maybe due to this. And then the monastery that you have on the photo there from 2019, I think today three monks living there, or four. So it's quite new. The church is not, you don't find the church in Holso, Sweden. We have this kind of uh, area where all the uh, congregate parishes are found between Stockholm and, and Gothenburg. And then you have Södertälje as its center, I would say, and the monastery close there to Stockholm. So you have to be aware that this is not a all over Sweden church. It's kind of, it's there where you find it, more or less. Maybe I missed something uh, in this map, but it's not in the whole country. Um, so I will just give you, I have still have some time, I'll just give you some glimpse from the survey that we did then. So this is the general uh, results about the church and then on the presentations that you will have will be more from the, the three congregations that we studied. Um, this is 45 questions. So from the, from the Survey, we have the largest Syrian, Syriac should be, uh, congregations here. So members, St. Ephraim, St. Jacob, the ones in Södertälje are the largest one. And then in a falling scale, Örebro, uh, which is also an early one. Um, you have the different churches and where they also were established according to themselves. So they are kind of large churches as the one in Södertälje. Uh, in the survey we also had a question about 
church building. So we have the churches in the churches, churches in the church, uh, and um, half of them, uh, more or less, has their own own church, which is also half, almost half of them, been constructed, and the others have been rebuilt. Uh, and then we have 16 um, parishes that rents the church and one that borrows it. So it's both. And, and I think it it's influences if you have your own church or if you borrow a church, how you live your parish life and how you can kind of construct uh, the congregation. Um, I think it's a strong influence on that. Um, another important area is kind of the priest in the church and the education and the upholding of, of the priest in the church. Um, so from the survey we know that 36 congregations have their own priests. So the other borrows priests from other congregations. Uh, the largest congregations have two priests, so it's kind of congregations without priests and congregations with two priests, so they differ. Uh, oh, then we have some of them are full employed as priests, but uh, many of them work part-time as priests and then have other occupations at the side, uh, which also, of course, make it different for the parish if you have a priest that's always there and work for the church, or if you have a priest that comes can be there sometimes, but not always. Um, three of the priests, priests in Sweden are have a theological training in Sweden, and I'll just show you where the other come from. Uh, so there are, most of them have their theological training in the Middle East. Uh, some in Europe, uh, probably in, in uh, Salzburg, some of them. Uh, they have kind of ongoing and, and newly achieved religious training. So it's not kind of that they have training back, back there, but, but it's, it's kind of ongoing and, and uh, it's, it's newly achieved training. And I think I skip the next one and we go further with, uh, no, oh no, I'll just, uh, before I let Katarina in to comment, uh, I will just give you an example. I think it's time, it's coming up to Christmas and Lucia, and I will just give you a little example from the research and this will be sound, so uh, you will just hear what's I think this is a nice example of traditions going on in the church. It's the same happening, and you will get two sounds from there. Hopefully, if technique works. Um. Some recognize this, <laughs> not everyone. And then we'll see if we listen to this one. Oh, I maybe have to stop them. Out. No, I have both now. Okay, now it's stopped. So, thank you for listening and welcome Katarina, who will say something if we can compare these churches as at all. My name is Katarina Westerlund, I'm associate professor in Uppsala University in practical theology. And I'm very happy to be invited here uh, and being able to give some comments on Magdalena's first presentation. I think, or I know, that the reason I'm here is because I'm leading a parallel project, so to say, uh, that's focusing on uh, Pentecostal migrants in the greater Stockholm area. So I will give some, uh, 
some background from that project so that you get a grip on that project and say something about similarities, differences, and, and perhaps challenges that we, that we see ahead from our project. We are not really finishing, but almost in the process of wrapping up and trying to write and so on. So I see this, this um, as an opportunity to reflect on similarities and differences that we might be able to, to write upon and present results from later on. Because Magdalena is also part of, of my project on a small percentage. But, but that's really great to have that within the project, so, so to say. So, um, yeah, so um, some background about the project. It's called Pentecostal Migrants in Secular Sweden, Influences and Challenges. And it's really about increasing the knowledge about these groups in the greater Stockholm area. As you might know, those kind of churches or groups, groups for the Pentecostal with international background is growing in the larger cities in Europe, in London, Paris, Stockholm, Copenhagen, and so on. So um, we created this project in order to gain knowledge of a field that we really didn't know very much about, uh, really a new landscape uh, emerging. And we are from different in the project, we are six, six uh, participants in the project coming from different dif disciplines, even more diverse than yours. Uh, uh, it's practical theology, sociology, religion, anthropology, law, and church history. So we have a, a quite a multidisciplinary group, and I will say something about that in the end as well, because I think that is important. Um, as a background, as I said, there is a new uh, landscape that we don't, don't know very much about. Uh, in the greater Stockholm area, 33% of the population have international background, meaning that one or two of the parents uh, or the people themselves, of course, have, are, are born outside Sweden. So 33%. And when it comes to those international or migrant Pentecostal churches, groups, whatever you call them, uh, they have grown till uh, uh, there are 100 churches after 2000 uh, that has sort of been established during the last two de decades. 200 new groups during those 20 years. That's really amazing. They are small, some of them, and some of them are larger. They come from different parts of the world, and some, some are, are merging uh, from different, 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 world, different countries. Uh, and uh, actually, in the project, we have been mapping uh, the landscape in the Greater Stockholm area. There's a report in Swedish about that. Uh, but we've also been studying especially three of those churches. One, Arabic-speaking, with, with uh, members from, from different, different uh, countries in the Arabic um, region. One, African, so to, so to say, from different African countries where they speak English. And one, Latin American uh, church where they speak Spanish from different Latin American countries. And one remark about that is really that the language is extremely important for those, the, the, these groups. They sort of gather around language. And some of the informants that really told me that it matters so much to be able to, to worship in their own language, that language of the heart. So that's really important. And I think that's a difference when you sort of compare to perhaps London, because their English is that you know English if you live there and been lived, living there for some, some years. So they don't worship that much in their sort of foreign or original languages as they do in, in a country like Sweden, where it takes time to, to learn Swedish. 
So that's really important to, to, to note, I think. Um, I will some, say something about uh, history. I also was really talking about language, nationality and language. I think it's, it's interesting when I try to compare uh, these two projects. Uh, firstly, the question of history. You said, Magdalena, it was the, the Zurich Orthodox Church has been in Sweden for 50 years. But when I look at it, it's a church that has been established on the 5th fifth century and <laughs> has a long tradition compared to the Pentecostals. That's from 19th, 20th century. And I have a Swedish history and then the new international or Pentecostal migrants came to Sweden on the, fifth, on the same period as, as you mentioned, the Finns and Romas. And then in the last 20, 30 years, they've come from different parts of the world. So it's a short history and not that long traditional church background. And that, I think, is very important when you compare. Uh, and we, also, we, we, we note, noted during, during coffee that we just thought, started to think about the choirs. Uh, a traditional old church like the Syriot Orthodox has traditional choirs with women singing. But in those, these Pentecostal churches, you don't have that kind of choirs at all. I haven't really think, thought about that. They have music, musicians, and a band playing, but then everyone is singing. Uh, so that, there's a big difference, and I think that's something you could look further upon. Um, yeah, so if you look at those, the Pentecostal churches, uh, you can see when it comes to integration that the first that foreign so I would say people that came come from fin came from Finland, and then they got Romas from from Poland and Finland as well, and the integration of of of, of these new Pentecostal migrants that we study uh, sort of follow the same line of integration like with the Finnish and the Roma. So it's really interesting to see what happened with the first that came, and how will the churches or or congregations act when they meet new migrants, new people coming into the churches. So we can see a traje traje trajectory there from the Finnish and Roma that came first, and now the, the, the uh, large groups coming from all over the world. So that's really a way to, to look and see what happening, what's happening when they, when, when they enter. Uh, yeah, and as I mentioned, sorry, um, the nationality and language is really, really important. And there, I think we could look upon more things about that, depending on what, what nationality they have from, from, from origin and what language they are sort of united uh, when they come, come here. And the Arabic church is very, very special in that respect. You have people from, from Iran, Egypt, Syria, a lot of countries down there, and all, everything is done in Arabic. Uh, and the Latin American is, is from different Latin American countries, and they've had longer history in Sweden, so there are differences when they entered Sweden as well. Uh, and the, the African church, where everything is done in English, they also attract people from Asia, India, and, and other countries. So the language is really, really important in order to form the group and what's happening. And also the African church that sort of is... is, is um, where everything is, is conducted in English, they have a lot of international contacts with global churches and, and, uh, and that kind of international, uh, international sister organizations all over the world. So that's really um, uh, will influence what's happening. 
the, the, the language and how they sort of um, uh, relate to nationality. Uh, yeah, and um, I think also when it's come to family and tradition uh, and the relation to society, uh, we have both similarities and differences. Uh, we can see in our project, I suppose we will hear about that later on, in this, these presentations there, that there are negotiations when it comes to family values, when it comes to gender, uh, equality, uh, and that kind of, of uh, uh, values that we are sup supposed to support in Sweden. And we also have a system of, of state regulations where you sort of could be accredited a faith-based organization and get money from the state and then you have to adhere to some equality and democratic values. So that's a way for the Swedish state sort of to, to influence or, or try to teach these new migrants or people coming to Sweden that you have sort of to, to adhere to gender, gen, gender equality, democracy, uh, mainly those kind of values. And that's been uh, um, reinforced during the last perhaps 10 years in Sweden that they pose these kind of demands on the, these groups, which means for, for the, the groups that I study that they choose not, sometimes not, to be part of that system and apply for funding. So that's really something they have to sort of take into account when they want to be established within the Swedish uh, system. Um, so, um, and also... Um, with, it comes to child rearing, uh, public schools, the work and employment systems. There's a lot of issues going, going on in these groups. And I think that's something we could look upon more thoroughly, uh, where the congregations works as an uh, sort of extended family uh, that gives security, stability, and also practical support in the um, negotiations with the Swedish society and the state where the newcomers don't really understand the system, don't know where to go to, how to, to take part in, in public welfare, <coughs> uh, medical care and so on. So there's a lot of practical support as well as spiritual within the, the, the congregation or the church. That's really, really important. And I think there, there we could find also Similarities and also differences, I think, when it comes to tradition and the time spent in, in the country. That, that I think is really important. Yeah, um, I think I will uh, wrap it up. And uh, three things that I would like to, 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 to end upon. And one is that we in our project has found, have found um, a double sort of discrimination, at least my field work has, has shown that uh, among these Pentecostal groups, both their ethnicity and their too much Christianity <laughs> is sort of not well, well seen in Sweden. The Swedes don't really understand them as they, under, as they describe it, and they feel sort of um, discriminated or, or, or meet discrimination, both uh, due to the color of the skin or the way they speak and due to their religiosity. And that's really tough. Um, so that's really something uh, I think I will at least want to look further upon when it comes to those double uh, situations where, where you can't really be uh, 
a person of faith as you want to, and you also have your, your uh, background to struggle with. Uh, and then I think we started out with um, labeling this as uh, Pentecostal migrants. Now we talk about international Pentecostals. Uh, and that's due to the fact that they don't come from one country and end up in Sweden. They move from one country to another country and come to Sweden and want to move on to another country, perhaps back to their country of origin. So there's a lot of international fluidity. They also have an international identity, so to say by, by their church belonging to an international church. So that's also kind of international bond, so to say. So we don't any longer talk about migrants, but we talk about international Pentecostals instead because that's really, really a better way of labeling this. And that's also been a, a result from our multidisciplinary discussions. In the beginning, we just found that we couldn't talk it to each other, but now we ended up as, as talking about international migrants, especially the law woman. She couldn't really talk about migrants because that in, 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 in law, it has a very specific meaning. So it's really about finding a terminology that works also multidisciplinary. So, but nevertheless, it also talks about this process, fluidity, not only moving between countries, but changing identities or the negotiations going on. So the fluidity, the mobility, the process, I think is, is fruitful to, to, to um, use as a metaphor and, and uh, investigate further in. And then I think the multidisciplinarity then is really, really important. And I think the law has been very important for us, but I lacked political science or that kind of view, knowing about the state, and not least in Sweden nowadays when we have new, a new government that will sort of, or at least tries to make more res restrictions for, for migrations and, and stuff like that. I think the political side is really, really, really important when you, you will study this, because they will, at least they say that there will, will, will be changes in, in the state regulations and so on. So uh, the multidisciplinarity, the international fluidity and the double discrimination is something that I at least would like to, to think about further. Yeah, thank you.